Well, today we continue our sermon series that we began last week on the topic of enjoying God. And wouldn't you know it, this past week I have not enjoyed God. Having begun so confidently last week on this theme of enjoying God, this week there were times where God appeared to be a million miles away. Uh, there were days of confusion where I didn't understand what was God was doing, and there were moments, quite frankly, where I felt angry at God for the things that he was bringing into my life. Uh, so how was your week? <laughs> <laughs> As part of this series on enjoying God, I wanted to speak on practicing the presence of God, and I was planning to do so in two parts. I wanted to start with seeing pleasure as an opportunity to express gratitude to God. And then I was planning at some point uh, to move on to seeing hardship as an opportunity to lean on God. But given my experience this past week, I thought it would be useful to change the order around. And today, look at living all of life before God. The joys, the sorrows, the questions, the frustrations. So if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, a passage that I'm sure will be familiar to you. This is what God's Word says. It's a prayer of David. O Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in, behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you would slay the wicked, O God! Away from me, you bloodthirsty men! They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. 
Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is God's word. So as with any passage of scripture, there is so much that we could look at in this psalm. This is a psalm that has brought comfort, assurance, and hope to millions of people down through the centuries since it was written almost 3,000 years ago. But this morning, I'd like to have a look at the main principle of this psalm, the invitation in this psalm, and the application of this to our own hearts and lives. So the principle, an invitation, and the application. Firstly, the main principle in this psalm. I think the principle is this, that all of God is everywhere present all of the time, and he is at work in all circumstances. All of God is everywhere present all of the time, and he is at work in all circumstances. You'll notice it's a principle in two parts. Part A, all of God is everywhere present all of the time. And Psalm 139 is the classic text that teaches the omnipresence of God. Verses 7 and 8, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. All of God is everywhere present all of the time. The theologian James Packer speaks about God's infinity. That is his freedom from all limits of time and space. And then part two of the principle, and he is at work in all circumstances. I think that's implied by the experience of the psalmist in the first few verses of the psalm, as well as what he says in verse 16. He says, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. There's a bit of an argument about whether this verse simply says that God has numbered every one of our days, or does it perhaps mean that God has also written down the contents of every day too? I don't think that we need to think that everything is predetermined and that we have no choice and we simply have to submit to blind fate or in this case God's will. But I think that we can argue from other places in the Bible that God is truly in control of every situation. And more than that, God is working it for good in the lives of those who love him. So in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul speaks about the plan of him, that is God, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And a few weeks ago, we had a whole sermon on Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, where Paul says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, that's you and I who believe in him, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. I used to think that this verse only referred to big things like long-term illness or unemployment or the loss of a loved one, 
But it seems to me that all things really does mean all things. The ordinary events of our day-to-day lives are part of God's design and are being used by God to conform us into the likeness of his Son. Now, this doesn't mean that we have to pretend that bad things are good things. Uh, Evil is evil. If you're a victim of injustice, you can say it as it is. Injustice is wrong. If you're struggling with sickness, you can say it as it is. Sickness is a scar on the good world God has made. We don't have to pretend that bad things are pleasant. But in God's hands, bad things are also full of purpose. So again, the principle of this passage, all of God is everywhere present all of the time, and he is at work in all circumstances. But having looked at that principle, let's move on and have a look at an important invitation. I wonder if you notice the difference between the beginning and the ending of this psalm. The psalmist begins in verse 1 by saying, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You're familiar with all my ways. And he ends in verse 23 by saying, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. What's the difference? What's the difference between, O Lord, you have searched me, and search me, O Lord? Well, verse 1 onwards describes intellectual knowledge. I know that God knows me and sees me and knows my thoughts and my ways and my words because he created my inmost being and knit me together in my mother's womb. But the end of the psalm is invitational. The psalmist invites God into what God already knows. He's no longer just acknowledging that God is present everywhere. He's beginning to practice the presence of God. He's actively seeking to give his attention to God in everything. As believers, we know intellectually that God is always present. We sometimes even correct ourselves in worship services, don't we? I'm sure you've heard people pray, Lord, as we come into your presence this morning, well, actually, Lord, we know that you're always present. But there's a big difference between knowing God is present and practicing the presence of God in our lives. According to Psalm 139, all of my life is lived out in the presence of God all of the time. I'm going to live out my life before God, whether I acknowledge him or not. This psalm is an invitation to me, to us, to consciously seek to live out our lives before God, moment by moment. We're invited to practice the presence of God. Which brings us thirdly to the application of this psalm. All of God is everywhere present all of the time, and he is at work in all circumstances. I'm invited to practice the presence of God in all of life. So let's spend a few moments looking at three categories of situation that are mentioned in this psalm and how we might practice God's presence in them. We know that we can practice God's presence in our joys, In verse 14, the psalmist says, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. 
we watch a documentary on television about the human body, or we go for a walk in Kirstenbosch, or we watch the sunset over Bloberg Beach, and we exclaim, your works are wonderful. But as I said, we'll come back to that category uh, at, at another stage. It's relatively easy to practice God's presence at Kirstenbosch. But I think there are at least three other categories of situation that are alluded to in the psalm in which it's more difficult to practice God's presence. Maybe they've been a part of your week too, or even what you're feeling right now. Let's have a look. Firstly, there's the situation of grief and sorrow, which I think is implied in verses 11 and 12. The psalmist is imagining a time when he might feel overwhelmed. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. I think it's important, extremely important, to see that the Christian life includes times of great darkness. There are some Christians who suggest that it's possible to live on a higher plane where all you experience is joy and victory. That's not the message of the Bible. The Psalms themselves describe experiences of deep darkness. Psalm 88, for example, is one of the darkest passages in all of Scripture as the psalmist ends his prayer by saying, You have taken my companions and loved ones from me. My closest friend is the darkness. But there's an even darker passage than this recorded in Scripture. When I find myself in dark situations, it's extremely helpful to remember that Jesus cried out from the cross in darkness, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So what do we do? How do we acknowledge the presence of God in grief and sorrow? Well, firstly, we need to acknowledge it. We need to acknowledge our pain. We need to acknowledge that we are in darkness and grief and sorrow. As human beings, we shrink back from these times because nobody enjoys pain and we don't enjoy feeling out of control. But Christians, as I've said, often carry another unnecessary burden in these times. We have the idea that sorrow and suffering are interruptions in our spiritual life. I just have to get over this or get through this and then I'll be experiencing God's blessing in my life. But times of suffering and sorrow are not interruptions in the spiritual life. They are the main ways in which God molds us and refines us and shapes us to become more like Jesus. The Apostle James famously, or perhaps infamously, begins his letter in chapter 1 by saying, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. And that same thought is picked up by Peter in 1 Peter 1 and Paul in Romans chapter 5. Grief and sorrow are not interruptions to my spiritual growth. They're the main source of spiritual maturity. As one writer puts it, nothing is wasted. 
God uses all things, even the confusing dark, for my benefit, for his glory, and for the good of others. I've learned things in the dark I could never have learned in the light, things that saved my life over and over again, so that there is really only one logical conclusion. I need darkness as much as I need light. So just acknowledging our pain. Uh, there are all sorts of biblical examples of this. As I've said, the majority of the Psalms are, are people praying, uh, uh, praying from the, the sense of lament. Or you can take David as an example. Uh, after the death of Jonathan and of Saul, Jonathan being David's best friend, David doesn't immediately say, well, that's over then. Let me establish my kingdom. We read that he writes a lament for Saul and Jonathan, and he teaches it to all of Israel. They spend time grieving. There's an entire a book of the Bible called Lamentations, which consists of several heart-rending poems grieving the catastrophe of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. So we need to pay attention to our pain. Maybe keep a diary. Uh, if you keep a journal, just record what you're feeling. In, in his book, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, Pastor Pete Scazzaro writes, when we're not in touch with what is going on inside us, we're not in reality, but in illusion or denial. And when we're not in reality, we're not in spirituality, because the authentic spiritual life is not an escape from reality, but an absolute commitment to it. And then secondly, in times of grief and sorrow, I, I need to wait on God. Waiting here doesn't mean sitting around doing nothing. Uh, it, it means waiting on God, seeking him, leaning into him. You know, it's in times of pain and sorrow that we're most aware of our need for God. And it's also in times of grief and sorrow uh, that we face the greatest temptation. There, there are times of great danger because there's the temptation to sink into despair, the temptation to take matters into my own hands, the temptation to numb my pain with sinful actions or patterns of behavior, the temptation to stop speaking with God out of anger. But instead we wait on God to birth something new out of the old. To quote Pete Scazzaro again, it's in these confusing in-between times that God uproots our self-will, strips us of layers of our false self, and frees us from unhealthy attachments. It's in these in-between seasons that we're emptied, and this emptying has one primary purpose, to make room for something new and better. The, the second category of situation in which we can practice God's presence is that of our sin. And I think that that situation is implied in verse 7, where the psalmist asks, "'Where can I go from your spirit?' Where can I flee from your presence? If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will be as light to you. So we can practice the presence of God even in, when, when we sin. Practicing the presence of God can keep me from sin in the first place. I remind myself that I can't hide from God. As God says in Jeremiah chapter 23, Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him? Do not I fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. 
I can't shut the door and hope that God won't see. But when I feel tempted to sin, where is God in that moment? What is he doing? Well, he's present right there, and he's holding a door open for me. Remember the scene in Finding Nemo. I'm sure you've watched the film or watched it with your children or grandchildren. And Nemo and Dory are stuck in a submarine. A shark is trying to get them. And Nemo shouts out, there's got to be a way out. There's got to be a way out. And Dory says, look, here's something. Escape. I wonder what that means. Funny, it sounds just like the word escape. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Escape. (laughs) When we fail to take that way out, his heart is grieved And when we've blown it and we realize what we've done and we turn back to God, eyes downcast, too frightened to look up at him, he's still there waiting to welcome us back. As we saw last week, there's nothing we can do to atone for our sins. I can't take the finished work of Jesus and think that I have to add my feeling sad about my sin in order for it to work. We're saved by grace alone. God delights to forgive us. He takes joy in forgiving us. We looked at Micah 7 last week. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You don't stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. That thought is so radical as to appear irresponsible. You can't tell people that God will freely forgive them their sins. It's pastorally irresponsible. Where will it lead? In fact, that's something of Paul's argument in Romans chapter 6, where he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? But you see, you haven't really understood grace fully until you can come to that point where you ask the question, hmm, If salvation really is by grace alone, then I can sin because it doesn't really matter. And in fact, it could be argued that God will be even more glorified by his forgiving my great sin. It's when you reach that point that you've understood salvation by grace. There's a line in a poem by W.H. Auden which says, I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. When you get to that point, you've really understood salvation by grace alone, but if you only get to that point, then you haven't fully understood salvation by grace alone. Philip Yancey speaks about grace abuse in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, and he says this, Would a groom on his wedding night hold the following conversation with his bride? Honey, I love you so much, and I'm eager to spend my life with you, but I need to work out a few details. Now that we're married, how far can I go with other women? Can I sleep with them, kiss them? You don't mind a few affairs now and then, do you? I know it might hurt you, but just think of all the opportunities you'll have to forgive me after I betray you. To such a Don Juan, the only response would be a slap in the face. 
And similarly, Paul's response to his hypothetical question is, God forbid. If we approach God with a what-can-I-get-away-with attitude, it proves we don't really grasp how much God has forgiven us and the depth of his love, what he has saved us from, as we saw last week, the graveyard and slavery, and what he saved us to, a relationship with him. Practicing the presence of God during times of temptation and sin can keep me from sin in the first place. It can drive me closer to God and his grace when I have disobeyed and sin. Sin doesn't need to push me away from God. Sin is an opportunity to experience his grace and forgiveness. The third category or situation in, we, in which we can practice God's presence is that of anger and frustration. I think the situation is implied in verses 19 to 22 where the psalmist says, If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. We were studying this passage of Scripture on a quiet day a few uh, months ago, and I think it was Colin who pointed out that the psalmist here may be involved in distraction. You know, he's looking inside himself, he's feeling uncomfortable, and so he's wanting to turn God's attention to those other people over there who are bad. I thought that was quite a good insight. The psalmist is frustrated here with men and women who are God's enemies, who hate God. We don't have time to look at the subject of anger in the Psalms, but the, the verses tell us a couple of very important things. Firstly, they remind us that we can come to God just as we are and tell him how we feel because he knows our thoughts before we speak them, as we read earlier. That's something that many of the Psalms teach us, the need for honesty in prayer, that we tell God what is in us, not what we think should be in us. Secondly, the verses demonstrate what zeal for God looks like. We see something of the psalmist's commitment to God. I love you so much, Lord, that my love for you is as hatred towards those who hate you. But thirdly, notice where the psalmist's anger takes him. It takes him firstly to a condemnation of his enemies, but he doesn't stay there. He recognizes that if he prays for God to strike the wicked, where is he going to stand, seeing as wickedness also dwells within him? And so he looks to God, even in his anger and frustration, and says, search me, O God. See if there is any offensive way in me. In his anger and frustration, the psalmist does what Jesus would later urge on his followers in Matthew 7, you know, to take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And when I'm getting frustrated with the people around me, it's worth me pausing and saying, why am I so angry? And is my, angry, is my anger causing feelings and thoughts and even actions that are just as bad as the original hurt? Our time is gone, but I do trust that this psalm will change our week ahead. That all of God 
is everywhere present all of the time and he is at work in all circumstances. I'm going to live out this following week every moment in God's presence, whether I acknowledge his presence or not, but I'm invited to live out all of my life before God and to see him at work in everything to change me into the image of his son. So what might this look like in the week that lies ahead? Let me end with a quote by Pastor Tim Chester in one of his books. He says, suppose you hit a traffic jam this week. It's very easy to get wound up. You worry about a late appointment. You're frustrated by the wasted time. But what happens if you remind yourself, God hasn't lost control of my life. This is his plan. He's designed this with me in mind. Is this an opportunity to learn something? Is it an opportunity to pray? Is it a God-given moment for reflection on my life or meditation on God's word? Maybe you can't identify any purpose in it, but that doesn't mean that there isn't one. It's enough for you to trust your Father's care. It's enough for you to pray, Father, thank you for this. Please use this to make me more like Jesus. There's a prayer for each day. Father, thank you for this. Please use it to make me more like Jesus. Let's pray together.